2: Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. This is going to be a fun one, folks, and want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate. I'm your host, James Coons, and we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we want to be sure that everybody, no matter what walk of life they're from, gets to make their case on a level playing field. And wanna let you know as well, no matter what walk of life you're from, we hope you feel welcome. So thanks for being here with us. It's gonna be a lot of fun. And if you happen to be kind of sick, in the head like us you like juicy controversial debates well have to let you know consider hitting that subscribe button below as we have many more debates to come so for example you'll see at the bottom right of your screen we are very excited as we will be having Matt Delahunty partnering with Dr. Josh this Friday night and that is going to be against the real life father son duo Cliff and Stuart Nettle, and so that is going to be a really fun one on the topic of biblical slavery. So with that, really excited to have you here, folks. Want to let you know for tonight's format, it's going to be pretty easy going. So it's going to be roughly 12 to 15 minutes from each side, and that's flexible, followed by about 50 to 60 minutes of open conversation, and then about roughly half hour of Q and A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. And if you tag me with modern day debate, it makes it easier for me to get every question in that list with that stoked to have our guests here we are thrilled to have these guys these are very experienced debaters and we'll start with randolph who is the president of canadian atheists and he's been here he's you could say a a veteran debater he is linked in the description so you can hear plenty more where you hear or from what you hear tonight and i want to ask randolph thrilled to have you here what can people expect to find at your link in the description
0: James, it's always a pleasure to be here. I, I really enjoy the, uh, the way you host these debates, and uh, it's always a lot of fun. People can find out more about the organization I run, the Canadian Atheists, at www.canadianatheists.ca. You can also find me on my YouTube channel at wwwyoutubecom Randolph Richardson. And remember, that's Randolph that's spelled with a letter F instead of a PH. And uh, one more link I'll give you is for an upcoming program that myself and a friend of mine named Neil the 604 Atheist will be hosting a live atheism call-in program where we'll cover topics of pretty much anything except for politics, because we want to have a good time. And <laughs> politics aren't always that enjoyable. So uh, that one you can find out more about at www.truenorthtalk.ca. It's probably a couple months away before we'll actually be able to uh, get to a point where we'll be able to start that program. But uh, we are looking forward to that. Thank you very much, James. And uh, thank you in advance to Ben. I'm looking forward to this.
2: Absolutely. The pleasure is all ours, Randolph, and thrilled to have another seasoned veteran debater. He's debated people such as Matt Dillahunty, and he himself has his own ministry, and we're thrilled to have you here, Ben. He is linked in the description, folks. So, Ben, if you'd be willing to share, what can people expect to find at your link? And thanks again for being here.
1: Yes, thanks so much for having me on the program this evening. Uh, So the ministry that I run is just simply called Ben Fisher Ministries. And among other things, I'm part of the adjunct faculty for Teen Challenge Leadership Institute here in the cities, which is a Bible school, one-year program for preparing individuals coming out of chemical dependency for the full-time ministry. So that's one of the things I do where I teach New Testament and apologetics. And then as well, I run a web-based ministry called Ben Fisher Ministries, as I noted, that uh, has a variety of resources on a plethora of scholarly uh, issues related to evidence for the faith. And so if you would like to become part of our online community, you can do so by requesting membership of the website or else looking us up on Facebook at Ben Fisher Ministries. So thanks so much for coming on the program and I'm certainly looking forward to having a spirited discussion with Randolph and looking forward to what kinds of discussion we might have
2: tonight. You got it. So thank you very much, Ben, as well. And with that, Ben is going to get the ball rolling with his opening statement. And so thanks so much, Ben. I've got the clock set for you. The floor is all yours.
1: Well, thanks so much again, James. Uh, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to come on to your program this evening. And Special thanks to a whole gang at Modern Day Debate for folding me into their schedule, as well as special thanks to Randall for being part of tonight's discussion. I'm certainly looking forward to a wonderful exchange of ideas as we discuss the question, is there reliable evidence for God? Now, in my opening statement, I'm going to be making the argument that there really are a few good arguments for God's existence. And so we'll discuss our way through how it is that we come upon those sorts of insights and explain what some of those evidences might be. So as we do, we'll just go ahead and jump in by uh, engaging with some ideas that have been around for quite some time, the idea of skepticism and the such like. And we'll work our way eventually towards the question of uh, whether or not there really is good evidence for God. So let's begin. Now, skepticism has probably been the dominant approach to engaging in religious discussion for over 20 centuries. And yet, from what we have seen in the past several decades, the kinds of views offered in defense of it have been, as some say, challenged. So therefore, a relevant question for tonight is, what is the proper basis and foundation for knowledge of any kind? Perhaps the most exhaustive approach to answering that question was undertaken by the early Greek thinker, Sextus Empiricus. And so therefore, it will be useful for us to spend some time in our discussion examining his arguments carefully. So let's jump in. Now, Sextus Empiricus was an early critic of Plato's teaching. He lived and wrote in roughly the mid second century, and Sextus thought that there were three main challenges to grounding our knowledge of any proposition. The first one we'll discuss is called the problem of the infinite regress. Essentially, the problem of the infinite regress is a difficulty which naturally arises due to the skeptics' demand that everything must be proven by something other than itself. In other words, justifiable proofs are demanded for everything without limitation. So therefore, the need to search for proof is never fully satisfied. Now, of course, this sort of demand seemed extravagant to some, a point which eventually gave rise to more conservative and rational philosophical positions within the Western tradition, because as the ancient Greeks quickly recognized, if everything must be proven, then nothing can. Now, to see why this is so, think about the question, does God exist? How do we go about answering it? Well, we might suppose that the way to settle a question like this is by using something called the rule of independence. And the rule of independence essentially says that in the case of any pair of contingent propositions, i.e. any propositions which await our conferring evidence upon it, what we need to do is to defend the proposition by using something other than the proposition itself. Of course, keep in mind that skepticism essentially held that it was a sheer given that all propositions invariably are contingent. So based on that assumption, we reason forward in our inquiry as follows. Contingent Proposition A is proven by contingent Proposition B. Contingent Proposition B is proven by contingent Proposition C. Contingent Proposition C is proven by Proposition D and so on and so forth until we reach Proposition Z. The problem, however, is that once we reach Proposition Z, we are now faced with a very serious question. How precisely do we determine the status of Z? Well, traditionally, the argument of infinitism is held that we show Z is proven by making a contingent upon, call it, Proposition A prime. So, contingent Proposition A prime is proven by contingent Proposition B prime. Contingent proposition B prime is proven by contingent proposition C prime. Then C prime is proven by D prime and so on and so forth until once again, we reach proposition Z prime. But once again, we are now faced with the same question as before. How do we show that Z prime is no longer contingent? Well, infinitism predictably holds that we simply continue our string of proofs by arguing that Z prime or Z1 is now contingent upon A2. So, contingent proposition A2 is proven by contingent proposition B2, so on and so forth, ad infinitum. Thus, the problem we're seeing here is that there seems to be no proper stopping mechanism for the inquiry. The string of proof just continues onward forever. And this means that we are essentially saying that our initial contingent proposition, call it A, was eternally contingent, which means that it can never be proven. And that is obviously a major problem because it raises some significant questions about the overall universal foundations for human knowledge. And so, what the absurdity of the first problem firmly settled in our minds, where do we turn next? Well, Sextus's answer is that we must now move on to door number two. Thus, the second possibility which Sextus explored was the argument of coherentism. Here, Sextus suggests that perhaps we should have responded differently to the previous challenge when we reach contingent proposition Z. So rather than making Z contingent upon A prime, we should have argued that Z was contingent upon some previous member of the original set of proofs. And so in that case, we might've responded by saying something like this, contingent proposition B or Z rather is proven by Y. However, this really does seem to be unacceptable. The reason it is, is all the appearances of radically adjusting the overall goal of the inquiry. Because the inquirer is now being offered something called a circular answer. Z is proven by Y. In other words, we're simply circling back to the previous proposition in the original set of proofs. And of course, this immediately raised the additional question, how is that really different from claiming that Z is contingent upon A? Well, to this, Sextus replies that what we are discussing here is whether coherency rather than independence is to be favored whenever settling a matter as closed to further inquiry. In other words, what we were asking is whether the fact that the list of proofs coheres well with one another forms a better conclusion to our inquiry than the idea that nothing can be proven. But this ultimately seemed to be unsatisfying to some as well, for how does this show that we have now identified a proper basis for closing knowledge to further question? And so, as a result, our inquiry has thus far seemed to prove that all philosophical systems are just doomed to be based upon flimsy, tottering, self defeating arguments. Because, as we are now seeing in the case of coherentism, a theory comes, becomes the proof of the argument, and without a proper footing, it simply folds like a house of cards. So, where does that leave us? Well, Sextus' concludes that it left us really with only one viable option an agreed upon foundation. Thus, the third and final trope in Sextus's argument is an agreed-upon foundation. In other words, we must agree to some sort of acceptable foundation upon which we rest our final arguments and our final conclusions. Mind you, these would be things that we deliberately choose not to question. Because, without settling upon some kind of premise which we exempt from all proofing, we cannot escape from the dilemma caused by the first two arguments, allegedly. At this point, we should probably note how troubling this is for some skeptical people because we are essentially suggesting that maybe we should have responded by claiming that Proposition Z wasn't contingent upon anything. In other words, maybe we should have simply responded by saying that Proposition Z does not need to be proven. So in the event that that sort of an answer is unacceptable as in fact it was to Sextus, how would our inquiry conclude? Well, in answer, Sextus surmised that our investigation has really left us with no ability to properly ground anything. In other words, it shows us that it is baseless for us to say that we can know something as well as it is baseless for it to say that we can know nothing. But there are several good reasons for thinking that Sextus had really reached the wrong conclusion in his argument. So to wrap up our discussion of Sextus's work, let's examine the two major approaches that foundationalism has historically taken to grounding our knowledge of any true proposition. Hence foundationalism has traditionally taken on two characteristically distinct forms. That is historically, it is either argued that one, we must presuppose that Z doesn't need to be proven or two, that we must demonstrate that Z may be axiomatically proven. Of course, the difference between a presupposition and an axiom is that a presupposition is merely blindly assumed while an axiom axiom, is self-evidently true. In other words, an axiom proves itself to be true by virtue of being something which we are never justified in questioning. Take for, for example, this argument. Is it not axiomatically certain that there are only three ways to settle the contingent status of Z? That is, we can either argue that Z is proven by A prime, Y or Z itself, Notice that there are no options for us to choose from other than this beyond our pointing out that in the case of the second option, it becomes just as valid for us to say that Z is proven by Y as it is to say that Z is proven by A. And so an axiom is therefore properly speaking a self-evident irreducible prime. It's something which upon inspection must necessarily be true and cannot be false. But this also means that no independent proof can be reasonably demanded of an axiom since to do so would be practically tantamount to denying the status of the thing under question. So now that we've seen that axioms are necessarily true, we arguably have discovered contraceptives that we really do have a philosophically acceptable basis for grounding religious knowledge. That is provided that our proposition is established on some sort of axiom, whatever logically follows from that proposition is equally as certain as the proposition itself. Of course, if this is true, and it hardly seems that it could be false, we would now be in a position to do precisely what the skeptic has denied. In other words, we would now be able to rationally ground religious knowledge, which would lead us to a welcome response to the various skeptical arguments we might explore. So with these things in mind, let's return to the main question for tonight. Is there good evidence for God? Given what we have shown, what argument might we use to show that God's existence may be axiomatically established? Well, consider the closing argument as one good possibility. Let's start by imagining for the sake of argument that we are all just brains in vats. As this is the common classical skeptical argument, we'll just start here. Now, an evil mad scientist has cleverly wired your cerebrum and is now controlling your every century experience. Would it perhaps surprise you that you could still desuse even in those dire straits that God exists? In fact, the argument is virtually irrefutable. Come what may, the divine inclusion persists. The case here, however, will ultimately hinge upon our prior discussion, since the key to the whole windup becomes connected to our view of math, because it's alleged that it's self-evidently true that whether we are array- awake in the real world or asleep in the matrix, two plus three always equals five. Now, from what we know of math, it's flatly impossible for mathematical truths like that to somehow wind up being false, so thus we can safely conclude that the rules of math are axiomatic, even if it turns out that we are just sleeping in the matrix. Now this in turn prepares us to answer the skeptic's challenge, because it leaves the proponent of atheism without a founded case, because if math is truly trustworthy, as we've in fact argued that it is, then time in the matrix must be finite and not beginningless. As noted philosopher of time, Professor William Lane Craig has argued, if the past were beginningless then the present could not have occurred. But surely that's absurd. We would therefore have to conclude that the matrix world itself must necessarily have a beginning. Now to explain, explore this point a bit further, consider the following illustration. I refer to it tonight as the ever-pending birthday. Imagine that you've walked into a room only to encounter an infinite row of tumbling dominoes. Each falling tile collapses the subsequent member, causing the preceding domino to plummet toward the earth. And each success- successive domino takes all of one second to accomplish it's inevitable collision with the floor and now just imagine that the row of dominoes is utterly beginningless leading to a final domino standing near your foot bending down you notice that the domino bears an inscription which reads the exact date of your birth you then begin to wonder if the set of dominoes is infinitely long how much time will it take for my birthday domino to collapse well the answer is unavoidable your tile would never fall consequently this would imply that you could never be born and so for this reason, the matrix world enclosing cannot be eternal. Some initial trigger had to set the world in motion. Because since a brain could not be invaded if its person were never born, some inaugural set of affairs is necessary for us to create the proper story. Moreover, the initial cause would have to exist eternally, since any finite cause would itself require some causal parent. And from this point, only one additional proof is needed to show that God is indeed lord of the matrix. Thus, our final query is truly the capstone for the case. If the causes trigger the other causes, then what is the founding reason? Well, if we say that the reason is something which lies outside of the cause itself, then it, and not the cause, is the real reason why the matrix world exists. Thus, the parent cause of the world necessarily causes itself to cause the other causes to be set in motion. And this doubtlessly implies a conscious will at work in the creation of any world that we might imagine to exist. From here, refuting atheism becomes very simple since our case for God's existence surely applies to life outside the because no matter the world the skeptic imagines, God would be the cause, which means that God exists in every possible world that we conceive of. Therefore, since it is not possible to conceptually erase God, the force of skeptical doubts are effectively neutralized. Nothing seems to be gained by them since God's existence is axiomatic, a point which would seem to imply that God cannot fail to exist. And so since God's existence can be grounded axiomatically, we have the firmest sort of proof for God's existence. And so I now hand the mic back to our moderator and back to Randolph.
2: Thank you very much, Ben Fisher. Thrilled for that opening statement. We will kick it over to Randolph. Thanks so much for being here as well, Randolph. The floor is all yours.
0: Well, thank you very much. That was uh, a very interesting, uh... Set of perspectives. I'm not. Uh, they're kind of new to me. This idea, but um, first of all, one one thing that really stood out to me was the idea of imagining that we are all just brains and vats. And to that, I would have to say, of course, we are. If you can all bear with me for a sec, I can prove this. Put your hands on your head, and I'll explain what you are holding now is essentially a vat. Your brain is in your skull, which qualifies as a vat. <laughs> All kidding aside, reality is, as far as I can, I can discern, real. This is what I have to live with, what I have to work with, unless my interlocutor here can show me how to leave the matrix. So I'm just gonna go through a couple of things here um, because it seems that there's an attempt to try to uh, bring cast doubt on skepticism, which I have no problem with. Um, sus- skepticism, as I understand it, is a suspension of judgment. And uh, I see that as an opportunity to put critical thinking through its, through its paces. So we can apply critical thinking to the different ideas that are being presented. Uh, we don't actually have to take a position on something. That is true skepticism uh, until and we try to do that in a non-biased way. So critical thinking is an essential part of this. It is both and it's important to understand this. that critical thinking is both skill based and attitude based. So we have the skill of applying logic, of uh, uh, testing evidence and different things like that. But the attitude is also very important for uh, considering the veracity of various claims and ideas. So, an attitude example would be if somebody were to tell you something and you're immediately denying it or immediately agreeing with it, um, that is not necessarily critical thinking. Um, because a, a more a better approach to critical thinking, I believe, is considering the idea that's being presented and say, oh, really, let's find out more. Maybe my own idea is is in error. But this is a very hard thing for people to do. Um, And most of us all the time with all kinds of little things we take for granted and assume because it's necessary to function in life. So we tend to reserve critical thinking for the more major questions such as the question in this debate. There is a need for evidence. And evidence is, of course, known very commonly as uh, as the available body of facts or information indicating whether belief or proposition is is true or it's valid, and and that's very important to to have reliable evidence. So the difference between just regular evidence, which is somebody can say they saw something. Um, we want reliable evidence so we'll know that what the person saw actually is what they saw, and they 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 weren't uh, they weren't seeing an illusion or something. Um, ben mentions axioms, um, axioms, and he compares them with um, presuppositions. So, a presupposition is very often viewed as a blind assumption, while an axiom is considered to be, is something like an assumption that is self-evidently true and just normally accepted. Um, It is a statement of propositions regarded as being established, accepted, or self-evidently true. But it's very important to remember that critical thinking still applies. Even if something that we recognize as a fact, later on we can turn up new evidence, we can discount that fact this happened in our history where people used to think the world was flat until new evidence came about and suddenly it it's it's different now it's a different landscape and now it's it's challenging ideas and those who who strive to be proper skeptics or 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 at least really good with critical thinking um, both attitude-based and skill-based, will have an open approach to considering this new idea and and trying to test the, the ideas out in their own way, and, and if they have the capability to do that. So when it comes to evidence, so evidence for a deity, I want reliable evidence, and for me, I need something that will, without any question to me, um, Prove to me that the deity is real. So, in the case of Christianity, which uh, Ben is representing here, is the the Christian view on this, as I understand. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Ben. Um, the uh, The Christian deity, as I understand it, has a number of characteristics, and at least two of them are omnipotence, which makes the deity all powerful, and omniscience, which makes the deity all knowing. So while I regard those as a paradox and I see that as already, um, uh, a failing for, uh, for the whole idea itself. Um, because for example, the deity knows with its omniscience that say tomorrow, we're going to have uh, rainfall in, in our city, but uses his omniscience the next day to change that so that it's not rainfall but instead we get sunshine or we get snow or something by taking that action and making that change and exercising his omnipotence he has now invalidated what he knew the day before and therein lies the paradox and that makes it a problem the other thing that i would like to know if i would like to have uh, this deity to prove to me If it's possible, and this is what I would accept as evidence, is uh, if this deity could grant to me for a week or two, a week or a fortnight, um, omniscience or very close to it, and omnipotence or very close to it, so that I can go ahead and explore the universe, the whole cosmos perhaps, and run some experiments, uh, maybe even bring some friends with me and uh, and verify all of this for myself because I would want to know for certain that this is real. And that's I think what it would take because this deity has such super amazing characteristics, I would want to at least be able to test drive them, so to speak. So those are kind of where I'm at with those things. Um, so I think that's probably I guess, where we can we can go with this. Um, oh, one more thing is, um, when it comes to atheism, it's very common, I find, for a lot of uh, theists to to say theism has to be proven true or disproven, proven false. And it's, it's a common misunderstanding that I've uh, encountered with debating with theists. Um, atheism is just a classification of not believing in deities answer the question, do you believe in deities? If the answer is not yes, then, you know, you're, you're not agreeing with that if you were to look at it as a proposition. You're an atheist, you just don't believe in deities. It is sometimes conflated with anti-theism, which is an opposing view to theism. And I do think that the anti-theistic point of view does carry a burden of proof just as much as the theistic one does. So to say that something does not exist, or to say that something that does exist, both carry that onus of justification or burden of proof. Thank you very much.
2: You bet. Thank you very much, Randolph. And we will kick it into open conversation, folks. So should be a lot of fun. And with that, the floor is all yours, gentlemen.
1: I'm
0: sure you have some questions, man. Why don't you go
1: ahead? <laughs> yes. Oh, pardon me. I just kicked the microphone stand by accident. Well, good. I- I'm glad to have gotten a chance to uh, hear a bit about your opening statement and hear uh, just some of the thoughts that you have on our discussion and uh, just to have written down and scribbled out some points and questions, which... Feel
0: free to ask for clarification. Because yeah, it be yeah. It's hard to keep up with the writing.
1: I'd love to ask for clarification on a couple of things. Okay. And also, if at any time during the discussion you would like to... Ask the same sorts of things of me. I'll do the best that I can to uh, sure. to answer those as well, <laughs> so that we can have some good back and forth discussion. And you started out by in your uh, opening statement by speaking about um, brains in the vat. Uh, this is the example that I gave toward the end of my opening statement, mm-hmm. and here is I was I was just simply drawing upon the most extreme example in the case literature to show that we really can't have knowledge about a good many things, and therefore, how could we have certainty about something like the existence of God? If we can't even know whether or not our senses are reliable, then how on earth could we know about God's existence? And so that was merely the reason for the opening illustration. It could be something, of course, less extreme, I think, and that might be helpful rather than choosing the most extreme example. But the thing that makes that one so compelling is that it seems that it, uh, if God's existence can be shown on some rational basis to be true in the matrix world, then perhaps there's a good reason to show that the same arguments extend to this world as well.
0: Well, except that the the matrix is a story. And uh, Mm -hmm. but I know you're talking about the concept, if that concept was actually the case. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing in hypotheticals here. So we need to Mm -hmm. somehow establish and agree that that actually is the case. I Mm -hmm. used a bit of humor. I attempted, I'm expecting nobody (laughs) because I'm not the best at delivering humor with the brain. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, (laughs) you enjoy
1: it. Sure. uh, The philosophers typically oh go ahead.
0: Oh no, but then I got serious with that by talking about how what I experience in reality is the best that I know that I can do. And I understand wow. that my perceptions can lead me astray and I'm willing to accept that. So that's that's an important thing. So to say that we have 100% certainty on anything, I think, is very difficult. Um, and this is why I say that an anti-theistic uh, point of view carries a burden of proof as well, because, you know, they're going to have to prove unequivocally that there is absolutely no evidence for this deity anywhere. So yes. for you, you have an easier time of it because your, your deity apparently interacts with human beings on planet earth. Am I correct?
1: Oh, certainly a, 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 Christian God mm-hmm. definitely does. But the argument to be fair that I've offered tonight is just simply A description for how we know that an entity like God exists. Um, And so this could really be applied to any sort of monotheistic God. It doesn't necessarily show that the God of Christianity exists. There we would be working with arguments that would perhaps go a bit farther afield from the question for tonight, which is, is there reliable evidence for God?
0: Well that um, is the topic. So
1: yeah, yeah, that's the topic. And and uh and we may, you know, perhaps you, you would think it would be fruitful for us to head that direction at some point tonight, but uh, my opening statement anyway, just simply dealt with the debate challenge at hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, well, when you go ahead. When you
0: talk about um that it could apply for any monotheistic god, mm-hmm. I I wonder how a couple of things. Why not a monotheistic goddess? Does it have to be male? Another one would be: Does it have to just be one? Why have you have you somehow ruled out that it could be multiple deities who all share the same omnipotence and omniscience and work together as a team to achieve the same aims as your monotheistic your preferred monotheistic god?
1: Yeah, and uh, so here, um, in in terms of the nature of God. This is related to something essentially which Christians would categorize as you know, revelatory theology. That is, by revelation, Christians know that God is is uh, three persons in one essence. That this is not something that we could deduce on the basis of reason alone, but God Himself would have to tell us. But uh, properly speaking. Uh, it would be an admission, I think, on the part of atheism to say that uh, there is a, a good argument to show that a female God exists as well as there is a good argument to show that a male God exists because it still leads to the conclusion God exists. And so yeah.
0: female um, would be a goddess, but I'm just quibbling. Yeah, sort of a god or a yeah. goddess.
1: But the <laughs> atheists at that point seem to be conceding the the principal question under discussion.
0: They do say that Satan was the first to ask for equal rights. So (laughs) I guess I'm following along with that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you're you're talking about uh, knowing things for certain. I think Mm -hmm. um, what often happens is that there is a level of confidence that we can have in in things, in ideas, in in positions on things in life. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't say that I'm 100% certain on anything in life but I can say that my confidence level is really, really close to hundred percent for many things. And Mm, um, mm -hmm. actually there is something I can say for certain. I can take uh, this phone, for instance, this telephone. And I know that if I drop it, that gravity is going to take it downward as it just did. And I just caught it. So it didn't hit the floor and smash and break Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) more confidence. Mm. I have now, of course, if I was to really get into it, I still can't say for certain I had a hundred percent confidence there. There's a tiny, tiny, not impossible scenario that I couldn't rule out, such as a major earthquake struck at the moment that I was dropping the phone, and suddenly I'm, I'm dropping so- down, and the phone stays where it is and goes up in the air, or something hits the planet, which I hope never happens. At that that's sure, level. but. You know, I can't rule out those possibilities, but now that it's happened, I can say with great with one hundred percent certainty that I just dropped that telephone and gravity the demonstration of gravity worked. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I've just provided you with an example that counters your your claim that uh, your or assertion that um, we can't know anything one hundred percent for certain that
1: we cannot know anything one hundred. Uh- I think that I made the claim that it's possible. Oh, you. If oh, we are and speaking, I
0: misunderstood you. I'm very sorry about that.
1: <laughs> oh no, no, no problem. And because no. in that, that case, I think that you and I would be in agreement. But I think okay. that it's possible for us to have a hundred percent certainty about something. But um, uh, getting back to your uh, question, your claim here that it's not possible for us to have one hundred percent certainty or knowledge, if you will, of any given. Uh, proposition.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, this would be essentially the argument of Plato uh before the, the 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 turn of you know essentially Christ's birth and the turn of history. And so uh I think that it was Sextus Empiricus who challenged the notion that it's impossible to know anything uh because that would itself seem to be a form of dogmatism. And so he used the various tropes that we went through in the opening discussion that there are three three ways to ground our knowledge of any true proposition. One of them is that, you know, you could use the rule of independence, A is proven, o, A, B, C, D, and on onwards until you read Z. Once you sure. read Z, what do you do? Um, and so you could just simply iterate the proof backwards an infinite number of times, in which case the original proposition is never proven, or you could go about by coherentism. Once you reach Uh, an acceptable uh, grounding proposition, whatever you think that that it is or arbitrarily choose it to be, you just simply start by passing the warrant for the proof of, say, contingent proposition Z back to Y or some previous member of the set, or you settle upon a form of foundationalism. And Sextus's point there seemed to be that we don't know which ones of these that we should choose. And so therefore to assert that we can't have knowledge is baseless because these are the only three ways to reason.
0: So um, would it be fair to say that you uh, don't have full confidence in the accuracy of the Bible then, or you do?
1: Well, uh, now with regard to the accuracy of the Bible, my confidence there is going to be based on arguments such as, you know, arguments for the resurrection of Jesus, who held that the Bible was indeed the Word of God. If that event can be shown to be true, then I think that we have good grounds for believing that God's word indeed is precisely what it claims to be but I wanted to ask you so where are um, you? Sorry, a couple I, of I,
0: I wanted to just quickly follow along with sure. her for a moment and then I'll be happy to answer your questions sure because it's on on topic here so it kind of sounds like you've got some hypothetical concerns there about the resurrection of Jesus from the way you just talked about it um where are you in your level of confidence, roughly, on whether that is an accurate depiction then? Because my understanding of mm-hmm. the Christian God is it's all from descriptions in the Bible.
1: Yes. And I think it's important here to recognize that the historian, the practicing historian, is not relying upon deductive arguments to fashion his conclusions. He's rather re- relying on inductive arguments, which would be appraisals of evidence and inference to the best explanation. And so there I'm as certain as I am about any uh, historical event concerning the resurrection of Jesus as as certain as anyone could be. Now I suppose that I could come up with some psychological reasons to entertain doubts, but they wouldn't be based upon reasons. and so therefore they don't tend to fascinate me.
0: So, and so for that
1: reason, I don't find that I'm that i that I uh, entertain much.
0: Conjecturous thought of them, but I did. So you, so you hold a very high confidence, pretty close to one
1: hundred percent. Would that be fair? I I think I do. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, concerning the resurrection of Jesus, yeah.
0: So my understanding of the Bible is it's the inspired word of God. This is what's often told. So it's mm-hmm. not actually mm-hmm. God who wrote it. It's people who are inspired by what they perceived of God. And mm-hmm. do you have a reason to to consider those people who wrote that? to be reliable?
1: Well, yes, I do uh, for a variety of reasons, but probably the uh, the most strong reason is that their their predictions, many of them were fulfilled in a single person, namely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so if that occurred, if they were right about that, I think that there are good reasons to say that uh, everything that they said about their predictions was true and everything that Jesus said about their predictions that he construed them as reliable descriptions of what will take place in the future, uh, that these are all going to happen as well. The resurrection of a dead man does tend to be an epistemic game changer, so to speak. Okay. Uh, I think that's a
0: fair answer. And I think it sounds like those are your reasons for believing what's written in the Bible. And and those are your reasons. Um, So and I've mentioned what my expectation is for some evidence, which is obviously very different from yours, but you have some questions for me, so go ahead.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, um, so one of the things that uh, that I think is is uh, was an interesting idea is, is that you felt that we would really need to have we we would need to possess the attribute of omniscience to know whether or not God exists, and I wonder if that's really the case, given uh, the argument that I walked out. If we can somehow conceptually erase a first mover, then perhaps, um, you know, there are some good reasons to doubt what I've shown because then in that case, God's existence couldn't be furnished on the basis of some axiom, couldn't be shown to be true on the basis of that. But since we do have that, and since that seems to be a necessary basis for knowledge, and axioms here would be things like A plus B is equal to B plus A it would be things like uh, logical um uh basically laws of logic things like that the law of contradiction etc
0: okay well um, a plus b uh, is, is
1: equal to b plus a that's that's an so if a is uh, uh is
0: one and b is minus two do we end up with the same results
1: well I I think that uh what I've just said is important to recognize here a plus b mm-hmm. not
0: or you're talking about compounding them. It doesn't matter the order of compounding them.
1: Correct. Yeah, oh, okay. exactly. And that We're would be an example of okay. an axiom, a mathematical axiom. Okay.
0: Sorry. Yeah. Go
1: ahead. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, by the way, I really enjoy these kinds of things, and I hope others yeah. out there are enjoying the discussion as well. But the question I have is, is do we really need to have uh, omniscience in order to establish that something is true? Um, it seems to me, for example, that even if I didn't have a single operational instance of one plus one equaling two anywhere in the universe, I could still be confident that the proposition one plus one equals two is true because it seems to me that me plus you equals two, whether we're standing in heaven on earth or in hell, it doesn't really matter. So it seems like certain things are just true. And, uh, And so if it turns out, for example, that it's axiomatically impossible to sort of conceptually erase a first cause out of any story, Um, then that winds up showing us that we have a good reason for believing that that first cause really does exist in this world.
0: Well, I think trivially I can show you that one plus one is equal to two. I have two in my hand now. two USB memory sticks. Mm. um these ones have Debian linux and ubuntu linux on them but um they're um uh i i've got these things in my hands i can count them and so it's very trivial and easy and a common thing in life to demonstrate that so this kind of axiom is very easy to accept because it's a very simple and straightforward kind of assumption that's being made based on things that we do in everyday life we're picking mm-hmm. up uh, fruit from the store and we're easily adding them together things all kinds of things like that yes when it comes to something else that we don't have direct access to such as uh somebody uh claiming that uh, there's a deity who can create entire galaxies that's a much different claim that has a different level of sufficiency for proving it and that's uh, that's where it came to the point of well we don't have anything in our technology today star trek unfortunately is not real we can't travel around the universe and and do all kinds of interesting things and and fil- have philosophical exercises with the alien species, which would be pretty awesome, I think, if we could. Um, so, sure. I'm then, a big
1: sci-fi fan.
0: So. Yeah, yeah. Hey, why not? Do you like the Orville? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, that's a, that's one worth checking out if if you're into that kind of thing. Um, it's a lot of fun. The um, the thing is, this is why I came up with this criteria for myself. Somebody was asking, what would it take atheists to believe in a deity and so that was my answer that's what it would take i thought about it for a while and i thought Mm -hmm. yeah that's what it would take because a lot of other things could be somebody could be fooled into that but this would not be Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. is something that i would be able to prove for myself and the interest you
1: add omniscience in other words yeah yeah. and so some could test drive yeah, traits sure and some interesting objections came
0: up uh one of them was you don't need that much time. They're trying to negotiate the time down. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, a lot of them said, you'd only need it for a fraction of a second um, and, or even a, a single Planck time unit is what some people were saying. But I said, nope, this is my criteria. I want one week or two weeks, uh, some some short period of time like that. But nonetheless, and, and considering the universe is infinite, our time is infinite, what's two weeks? It should be nothing, in com- almost like nothing in comparison to that. The other, the other one objection that came up is, oh, how can we trust you not to use that omnipotence against God? So I said, okay, I'm willing to have a condition imp- imposed on that, that I can't do anything to God and can't interfere with his plans. So that would be, that seemed to end the conversation. I didn't get a reply after that. But I'm going what the point I'm trying to make is that I'm going forward with a very genuine kind of uh, criteria here because I think that this would be uh, something that I really would like to know if that's true, and this is what it would actually take to prove it to me.
1: Sure. um, and so you know essentially my my question here with regard to this, and uh, this would maybe be my question to you, okay, is is why? Would someone need something on the level of omniscience in order to know that an axiom is true? Uh, You went back to 1 plus 1 equaling 2. You can do that with two USB drives. But I I essentially essentially asked the question with regard to that criterion, why is it necessary to have a single operational instance of 1 plus 1 equaling 2 anywhere in the universe in order to show that 1 plus 1 equals 2? It seems that that's established on the laws of logic, which yes. cannot be reasonably obviated. And so, that therefore, it just seems that we're without reason to resort to something like that in the face of a bona fide axiom. And that seems to be what we have in the case of God's existence. We need there to be this initial parent cause of the universe called the first domino that sets the string of dominoes in motion. Because if the domino with your birthday written on it, let's call it the red domino, uh, in order for that red domino to fall, there needs to be a finite number of causes behind it. You could say that that red domino signifies anything. It could signify your birthday. It could signify uh, the events of the Capitol revolt that took place in Washington, D.C. It could signify uh, the assassination of JFK. It could signify any event in history. But it seems that there needs to be a singular cause that sets the other causes in motion minimally in order to explain why it is that the red domino collapses. And if the red domino uh, is, is, uh, is, is basically preceded by an infinite number of dominoes then that domino never goes down in which case today never happens. So the principle here is essentially that a universe, which isn't itself triggered will itself trigger nothing within it. That's a conundrum that I don't think that we can get around. And so if -hmm. that cause is necessary and sufficient to explain the rest, why shouldn't we conclude that in the face of the fact that it appears we can't conceptually erase that, uh, that that cause is important, whether you're talking about this world, the world of the Swiss family Robinson, or what have you. Um, It doesn't matter. All these sorts of conjectural worlds require this.
0: This is a fantastic discussion. I'm really enjoying how we're getting right into all this. I, this is something I've been looking forward to for years. I had no idea it would be tonight. This is great. Um, thank you. Um, first of all, you're you're asking me why would omniscience and omnipotence be needed to to validate an axiom?
1: Yeah,
0: that would not be my purpose. My purpose is very clear. It is to prove that reliably that the deity exists so um that is my focus and uh, sure. to to call it um uh, to, to cut it down to an axiom kind of doesn't really it, it kind of trivializes it i think um because um i i'm sure that many religious people would think of their deity or deities as so much greater than a mere axiom but the more important point is um so, so, you're asking why it's, it's my criteria because it is the omniscience and omnipotence are such fantastic and all encompassing characteristics. Um, I'm not really, I don't know any other way that those could be demonstrated to me without me actually being able to test drive them, so to speak, and to, to, to give them a try to try them out. And um so um, unless unless there's something else that can that can do that, like I say, Star Trek's not real. We can't explore the universe and and the cosmos and watch this stuff happen and uh, and and poke and prod mm. at it scientifically to figure it out or skeptically mm. figure it out. So sure. Um, now I would like to get to the first cause, but I I, I sense that you have something to say to this. So I, I go ahead if, if you do. Sure.
1: I don't. Want to yeah. You, <laughs> you know um,
0: the. I don't the want res- to stop on you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the response of Sextus Empiricus to Plato's Academy was essentially to walk them through the tropes that I identified in my opening talk. Mm-hmm. So essentially he would, you know, essentially ask the the academician, well, uh, why do you think that your um your conclusion here is truth conducive. Yeah, this is a good, a good way to say it. Do you think that's truth conducive? What you've done at that part at that point is you've pressed the button and you've restarted the infinite regress. If you answer the question then I can just simply point it back to you, well, how do you know that that's truth conducive such that this could be iterated endlessly in which case we never know whether or not what you said is true. Mm -hmm. Um, in which case the very argument you offered has no basis, um, if that was insufficient, to the opponent of sex to see what simply say, well, then where well, there's always door number two, you could always argue for coherentism. So you could say that you know that that's true on the basis of something uh, you mentioned reliable. So reliabilism is, is uh, we have reliable processes, et cetera, for how we come upon these things. And so what you're essentially doing, that's uh, it's a coherentist argument, that we have these coherent processes that seem to furnish to us proofs. But the question which naturally becomes raised at that point is how does that show us that we have a, pr- a proper foundation for the uh, the bottom of your assertion? Um, do you think that that's truth conducive? If, if you give me an answer that's different from one of the previous answers you gave, then you've once again started the infinite regress. If you give me an answer that's the same as the ones you gave, you're just simply arguing circularly, mm-hmm. which seems unacceptable to most people at which point what then is the, th- the only other alternative? It seems that it's foundationalism. So once again, if you assert what you just asserted, we could just simply say, do you think that's truth conducive? You might say something like, well, I don't need to show that it's truth conducive because it's self-evident. There you're arguing for an axiom. But my question, which immediately becomes raised, is uh, how do you know that what you're saying is an axiom? Is it something that's based on a a fundamental, self-evident, irreducible prime, some sort of law of logic that cannot be obviated that if avoided just simply demonstrates necessity of the thing under question that we need laws of logic to even try to say that there's no law of logic because that's that's the law of contradiction so
0: i'm, I'm actually just, okay with saying i don't know whether something i've asked or said is axiomatic um, yeah and, because and essentially in some cultures it could be and others nobody's heard of it
1: yeah. right right and my my response here is just simply that that was precisely sextus's conclusion to the argument we don't know which ones three Which three of these which one of these three to choose from, therefore, yeah. we're at a loss to show. But but the way that I reply there is just simply say, but but Sextus, you have these three conclusions that you're talking about, and, and it has to be one of the three. Isn't that an axiom? Isn't it axiomatically certain that the contingent status of proposition Z, whatever that was, is either demonstrated by saying Z is proven by A prime, or Z is proven by Y, or else some other previous member of the set, or Z is proven by Z. And so that you, seems to be axiomatically true. Therefore, axioms are yeah, reliable did. because they give us arguments like that.
0: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you you highlighted that uh, uh, Sextus Empiricus's arguments boil down to those three points, which were mm-hmm. the problem of infinite regress, the argument mm-hmm. of coherentism, yeah. and the agreement upon foundation—the uh, only remaining option. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, that's... It's good, my notes are correct. Okay, <laughs> I made notes while you were doing your opening. Sure, hearing. I yeah. try to pay close attention, um, yeah. at, especially at those yeah. points. So I think where you and I are at is at number three, where we're trying to uh, find an agreed-upon foundation,
3: mm-hmm.
0: which I think takes us to your next point where you were talking about uh, there must be a first cause.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But mm-hmm. so... I've got a few questions about that for you, because are you convinced, it seems to me that you are, that our universe uh, has a single first cause?
1: Well, I think it, it needs it needs a first cause, because uh, the effect requires some kind of an explanation. Uh, but I'm asking the effect you which would you be you believe
0: the... it has a first cause.
1: Yes, I do. I, okay. I would believe that, because the first cause...
0: Would you be willing to entertain the
1: have burst out of the you,
0: Have you ruled out the possibility of there being multiple causes that occurred at exactly the same time in initiating our universe?
1: Yeah, this would be a standard argument from skepticism. And the skepticism essentially has uh, a very recognizable classical form to it. Okay. If I know that P, I know that not Q, I don't know that not Q, therefore I don't know that P. Now, <laughs> not Q would in this case be how do I know that there are not multiple gods back there? And if I don't know that there are not multiple gods back there, then I don't know uh, whether or not.
0: I wasn't asking about multiple deities. I'm asking about, for example, maybe I'll I'll try to put in different terms. Uh, Okay. Multiple, like a lot of people are saying it's from the big bang. So what about the possibility of multiple big Bangs occurring at exactly the same moment, but in different areas and, converging to create our one universe. Have you been able to rule that kind of thing out? I'm assuming that you are okay with the idea of the Big Bang being the start of our universe.
1: Well, I mean, this is my this is my this would I'm lead wrong. us down a huge rabbit hole, but um, I don't mean to. I'm just trying no, to No, that's fine. Yeah. that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this conversation, you know like this, it's a little bit more casual than a, a very formal debate. Yeah. But my confidence that the Big Bang is a right control of the beginning of the universe is really low because oh. the big Bang, posits the existence of a singularity that is comprised of infinite qualities, infinite heat, infinite density. Mm. And it seems to me that infinite heat cannot become cool. Infinite density cannot be downwardly adjusted. Uh, Infinite smallness cannot increase to the size of the universe that we see around us. So I I just have no confidence that these models Furnished to us an explanation for why it is that the universe is expanding. Now, I don't claim to know what that is. I have no idea. Okay. But on philosophical grounds, I'm really skeptical that the Big Bang has got a good handle on things. And if we were to explore that, it would we would be talking about cosmology all night and we yeah, would just get yeah. off the philosophical. Um, so maybe that's probably not the best place to go. Um, and I, can,
0: so, I can accept that because I'm not a hundred percent convinced that the big bang or multiple oh, big bangs okay. because, uh, Stephen Hawking and Penrose, uh, as I understand it worked together and updated their theory to support multiple big bangs. And that's kind of why I was bringing this up, but sure. Um, so
1: multiple big Bangs.
0: Yeah. Because of quantum physics, they, they had to adjust it, uh, accordingly new evidence, as I had mentioned earlier. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, <clears throat> but I think uh, like I've I've encountered some Christians who actually quite a few who uh, tell me that they believe that the Big Bang was put into motion by God to make this all happen almost automatically.
1: That's a very common. Sounds
0: like a a lazy solution, which is called working smart. I think (laughs) if you can do something like that and it's reliable, why not? Uh, but this brings me to the next question then. Um, and I, okay. And I, I think it's probably fair to assume that you believe God created the whole universe, however he's done it, Big Bang or otherwise.
1: However it happened, yes. Okay.
0: All right. Yes. So in that case, um, are you thinking, because you're saying that everything must have some kind of cause that triggered it, What? Are you? do you also apply that to your God?
1: Yes, and again, this is oh what
0: started your God?
1: right. this is the infinitist argument. Well, if God created the world, what created well, it's God your
0: claim. And you need to provide reliable evidence of this God and so this is why I'm asking
1: yeah yeah, and the proof that that you that one shouldn't just arbitrarily iterate backwards and say, well, what created that God is because the question can be asked, fairly straightforwardly of the atheist you know if god created the world and what made god couldn't i ask you the same question if someone made the god that made the world and who made that someone
2: well you could
0: ask me uh, a similar question if
1: um, yeah if and the, the point of a question like that
0: i think because i do have some ideas on that
1: but oh okay
0: <laughs> sure sure i have yeah. an alternative to your god but um it's uh but i'm not sure a scientist i'll say that right off the bat Uh Right,
1: right. But there again, I think the theist would just simply respond by saying, but that's still an admission to the existence of God, because you're just suggesting a different God. It doesn't really get around the issue. I didn't say
0: it was a deity. I said it was an alternative.
1: Okay, sure. So it was an alternative. So if it is an alternative, if if something made the God that made the world, and and I would just simply say it, then then what made that something? It seems yeah. that that something would need some sort of an origin story as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if, if one is to say that everything, including a first cause must have a cause um, the very, the very I fact that,
0: that. I, I'm not convinced that that's actually the case. What in reality,
1: but what isn't the case
0: that everything must have a cause.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that if, if it's not the case that, that, um, the universe has a cause, then I would say, how long has the universe been here? It certainly could, could not have been here for an infinite amount of time. It, it simply seems co- incoherent that there I have been an infinite yeah. number of saying, temporal seconds.
0: So you're mm-hmm. saying that if the universe didn't have a cause, it couldn't be infinite. Did I hear you correctly?
1: No, no, no I said, sorry.
0: No, no problem. Yeah. No problem.
1: Yeah. The, the, the cause of the the universe needs to be there because if that's not the case, then then there's then it's just if there's no first cause, then that immediately leads to an infinite number of causes, which means that whatever caused this moment to happen never happened, and neither did this one. And, and that really I, seems I, I to me to, to pose some enormous problems.
0: And well, yeah, and and one of the problems that you'll have is having to um, to show that uh, uh, there why the universe actually can't be infinite. Then I would think. I think that would not be an unfair requirement to put on you.
1: What uh, pardon? I want if you if you're claiming
0: that. that the universe is not mm-hmm. um, uh, infinite, like it had a beginning, then it's not infinite.
1: Uh, well, I think we, we would know fairly certainly that if the universe it? were infinite, because we would see no stars in the sky. The what? the celestial objects would have receded beyond the range of uh, of our telescopes to be able to see because um, then at that um, point the stars would have receded so far that uh, it would it, the distance would exceed uh, the ability of light to travel from I, those distant objects to our telescopes so you, the whole sky some, should be black. You're making some assumptions here. I think. I think I'm based on laws of science, aren't I? I mean, I think that most people most scientists would agree that which, which we would need to have uh if if it were true that the infinite that the universe has been expanding you know why why is it that we see anything at all in the sky if it's just had an infinite number amount of time to recede away from us why do we see anything so yeah i have no problem you're, saying you're, that the universe has a I beginning think, i think
0: you're assuming a, a specific point in time where all these things are going on and as being much further back than it was in that case when you're saying stuff like well this. yeah
1: i mean you're you're positing you know an, an infinite universe
0: and i um, and i've already pointed out that hawking mm-hmm. and penrose have identified that it's because of quantum physics uh, research advancements that uh, there, it can't just be a single Big Bang. There'd be multiple Big Bangs. And they're not saying they'd all necessarily be... Yeah, but that Big
1: itself Bang. would seem to need to have a cause as well. Okay. That you know, the, the, the creation of a multiverse oh, um, I wasn't talking also universe. begs for the same thing as the creation
0: I, of this universe. I wasn't talking multiverses. I was talking multiple Big Bangs.
1: Oh so are you talking about some sort of uh you know uh, sort of well, membranes beating together over and over again and expanding and contracting for eternity is that what yeah, you
0: possibly I'm talking about uh, um we have this idea with a singular with a single big bang that our universe may be shaped like a sphere or an oblate spheroid but with multiple big bangs I think it'd be more likely to be shaped like a lumpy potato and I, I don't mean to be funny here I'm just this is <laughs> it's
1: I'm, depending I'm, on where they are yeah right? it may be that i'm unaware of any cosmologies that require the shape of the universe to be a potato a lumpy potato but, but well, I, if there's multiple bangs, it's
0: not going to it's going to be an irregular shape is what i'm saying right because they're they're going to be in different places perhaps like unless we Well,
1: it's be- it's going to be conical because the universe is expanding mm-hmm. and in the case of the standard model it comes to a hard point which is uh a further most extremity physical extremity of the space-time universe if it's going to be the quantum gravity model as you suggested from honking and penrose with sort of the rounded off yeah shape that has sort of shaved away the hard edge
3: yeah
1: um, that would be the case of sort of interpreting one of the dimensions of space-time that of time as another dimension of space but that has been shown to be just sort of Well, it hasn't been shown, it's been admitted that this is probably just a mathematical contrivance, and even Hawking himself admitted that when you take away the, you know, sort of imaginary time, which is the mechanism you use to accomplish this uh, wonderful trick, the traditional singularities appear with point incompleteness at the beginning of the universe, Um, you know, sort of a lack of a surveyable geometry. So I think that, you know, some of these things are conjecturings about what we see in terms of the scientific models in this yeah. world. It's um,
0: not, it's not totally settled. I, I agree with that.
1: It's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, it's very much There's is in flux. About but this universe. is an interesting thing: is, is that as it turns out, just on the purely philosophical um, sort of thought experiments I offered, mm-hmm. it seems that it, you would need to have a grand parent cause of the universe, a cause that causes itself. To bring yeah, the see, other causes the into motion, I, I'm willing such to
0: grant, that hmm? I'm willing to grant the fact that there are uh, there there are people who are not convinced the universe is actually always expanding, and uh, you
1: know it's yeah I don't you know, think anyone really thinks that
0: yeah it's it's well you know it's it's hard to know but I don't think it really is all that conducive to uh, giving us reliable evidence for your God. And your really? God, which I, by the way, pointed out, uh, is paradoxical with those characteristics of omniscience and omnipotence.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. You know. I suppose there that. Um, you know. Essentially, this this sounds to me like um, uh, basically the discussion of philosopher, early Greek philosopher Epicurus, and Epicurus essentially reasoned a a set of five premises for an argument that concluded therefore God does not. If God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. If God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. If an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, it follows that suffering does not. Suffering exists, therefore God doesn't. Um, Yeah,
0: there's uh, an interesting thing. I know Pascal's wager comes up a lot too uh, as uh, in those kind of discussions, and it's a very different discussion, though. But. Mm. Yeah, I'm. My yeah, parents, to me
1: that my that out, is probably the the best argument for for what I would call propositional atheism. Well, you you use the kind of like the idea of more of a sort of lack theism, just sort of lacking the evidence. Well, lack theism is a
0: derogatory term. I I don't like it. I, I just hmm. I, atheism is already covers it. So um, hmm. some people say non theism. It's the vast majority are saying atheism, but um, it's uh, uh, the uh, the point where people are saying God really does not exist and they're taking that actual position. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the anti theist That's the anti-identifying. Yeah. Anti-theist. And
1: that would be the arguments you mentioned on. Yeah. On and the, those would these, be anti-theistic
0: arguments. And for the purpose of this debate, we kind of need to get into those because I need to kind of push against your ideas and challenge them. Right. So, um, yeah. but I'm, I am stuck at this point of um, this claim that this deity of yours is, uh, that, that you prefer, is, um, that you believe in, is is actually real. And, and this is, again, where sufficient evidence, I think, is required to, uh, to demonstrate that, yes, this is the real thing. And to me, what qualifies as sufficient evidence is, for myself personally, the ability to test drive uh, those two abilities.
1: Yeah. To to test drive all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, I guess that the difference between you and I is that I'm just simply not convinced that something that extravagant is necessary when we're talking about an axiom, because, Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, for example, I think it's, it is the case that, that, uh, you know, a universe is not our universe can't really, um, it, it can't really be infinitely old. It seems to me that that's impossible. Oh, Math well, shows us why. Uh, and in fact, um, you're probably aware of this, but uh, but essentially there's been the, the uh, emergence of theorems which have showed that on any universe which exists in the state of uh, expansion eternally into the future, that none of these models can be eternal in the past, but all of them must have a start with a space-time singularity. And so that holds to be true, whether you're talking about quantum loop models, quantum gravity models, whether you're talking about string theory, um, a variety of different, um, you know, elaborate proposals like these, all of these depend on the existence of a singularity at the beginning
3: in order to to
1: explain their existence, which is another way of saying that, that they have to have a beginning. And, and I have um, to
0: reject that the singularity part of it because of the update from Penrose and Hawking, which I I, I think uh, makes sense. There could be multiple. Um, uh, but how
1: how does one know whether or not that sort of uh, a response is not just simply a matter of sheer scientific instrumentalism, having no reality in the real world? It seems like something like that is just simply a mathematical contrivance that's well, come up with. Because um, yeah. I, I think Frank Tipler has shown that. Essentially, it's 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 not thought of by scientists that really space is really like or time is really like another dimension of space. No one really believes that that's true. It's just that the equations lead to sort of a shaving off of the hard edge. So it's a matter of convenience, not a matter of reality, because if you just simply posit, well, what if space? You know, what if time really isn't like another dimension of space? Oh, I don't I don't think time then at that point. The singularities show up in the equations again, as, as Hawking admitted, and so. Since
0: um, um, time is a dimension, I, I I think of it as more of just a reference point. But we have predictable things that we can use to measure what we perceive as time. Um, so it's it's not. The well,
1: time is thought of as a dimension by really? by scientists.
0: Oh, it's it's expressed as that for sure um i'm I'm not convinced but I'm not a scientist like I say so um, like hmm. when I look at things like we have an expanding universe expanding out from right. a singularity, one of the big questions for me that comes up is, Mm -hmm. why is it that uh and the andromeda galaxy is heading straight for ours instead of going away from it if everything's expanding does this not um perhaps give some good reason to consider the possibility that hawking and penrose are on the right track with saying there are multiple uh, big bangs creating that have created the universe
1: yeah um so there the, the notion of there being um multiple big bangs um there's there's a big bang per expansion phase, uh, in any of these models. Okay. Um, but uh, there there is no sense in which uh, you know there's there are events that are occurring in this universe that sort of pinch off to new ones. Yeah. Um, I'm- Hawking essentially. That was the subject of, from what I understand, a bet that Hawking had with another colleague of oh. his, <laughs> and he essentially lost the bet and say no, all of the mat- all of the information sort of stays in this universe. It doesn't go. Into other universes, so I don't think that that's necessarily what's being talked about. Talked okay. about by Penrose and Hawking, and sort of the you know the sure. shaving off of space-time into a, a yeah half sphere so, like that.
0: I'm, yeah, so in order to demonstrate the rationale, uh, the the uh, the, uh, um, the reliable evidence for your God, uh, mm-hmm. we need to have. Um, we need to have some reliable evidence. So you've talked about axioms and things like that. And we've had a wonderful discussion about a lot yeah. of different things. And I've enjoyed this thoroughly, but.
1: Yeah. Is my my question evidence?
0: though, the, 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 yeah, my the, question. Reliable evidence.
1: Yeah. My okay. question about reliable evidence is that you say that uh, you need to have omniscience. And my question for you is again, to just sort of resort to the tropes of sexist. Okay, Why do you I think that, you that would be true?
0: But you like I want reliable. Well, why, did,
1: why would that be truth conducive?
0: And when I asked you some things like uh, about the people who wrote the Bible, um, you agreed that people are infallible and there could be mistakes with that. So um, you know, I'm, I'd like to know what what is your reliable evidence for your God? Something that can be relied on, uh, or you know, something that convinced me that I should consider some different evidence as reliable. Um, like Mm -hmm. to me the bible looks more like a claim or a set of claims Uh, it's not so much as evidence to me it's it's certainly evidence that this is what people thought a long time ago i can grant that no problem but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what they actually witnessed and that that's the concern for me especially Mm -hmm. from a time when literacy was kind of rare
1: yes well um You know, I think that what I would say here is that, um, you know, essentially I would go back to your claim that you need to have omniscience to know that God exists. And my question becomes, why would that be truth conducive as to the proving of settling the matter of God's existence as firmly probative? How does that show that?
0: What I told you, what I said is that that would definitely do it for me.
1: So it would do it for you. So that's not necessarily a proof of God's existence.
0: Well, yeah. And so this is why, you know, we're discussing reliable evidence. So um, we need some I'm looking for you to you for some reliable evidence that uh, and I gave you uh, that as an example Mm -hmm. of a criteria Mm -hmm. that would definitely work for me. And I suspect that if God were to give you omniscience and omnipotence for a couple of weeks, you'd probably be delighted with that because then you would know 100% for sure. But I... Well,
1: I don't don't know. I I suppose I could always ask the question, how do I know I really have omniscience? Maybe he's only given me some of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. But even if
1: he could give you some of it,
0: that enough to do what I was suggesting to do to test out some things, that that could could work, right? Yeah.
1: the the, um
0: get down to perception of reality again here in this case
1: yeah i mean how much information would lead me to the conclusion that i have omniscience i'm not sure that i would be able to say in myself whether i have all the information necessary to show this and you know essentially as it comes as it relates to the issue of christianity and, and i think i don't know if james is you know wanting to sort of pivot at this point but I think that when it comes to the claims of Christianity and becoming a Christian, here, the evidence that leads a person to become a Christian is not just simply evidence that God is real. That's not going to do it for anybody. It's not just simply um, the claim that we have this great book. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: It's because um, a man named Jesus of Nazareth went around the ancient world performing miracles and exorcisms, raising up basically messianic expectations almost everywhere he went, and then claimed that he was going to the cross to die for the sin of the world, that he was dying an atoning death. And then for me, and I think probably for any Christian that's watching this, becomes the principal reason as to why I commit my life to Christ and become a Christian. But that isn't something that comes to me on the basis of just simply apprising whether or not it's true that God exists. That's certainly part of it that's constituent to the broader inquiry, but it is not the linchpin. The linchpin becomes the cross. And so as these, basically these these questions that I have that I struggle with become answered, it's almost as though these obstacles to my standing and sort of clear view of the cross become removed. And suddenly I can see the face of this man who says he died for me. And that's what turns me into a Christian. That's what turns all of us into Christians, I think. So,
0: uh, the sacrifice uh, appeals to you. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, uh, I, I think that dying for somebody else's uh, wrongdoings is unethical. It's uh, I consider that's vicarious redemption. I I have a big problem with that. Um, but um, that's, of course, not the topic here. But it's, it's, right. it's good to know that that's that's what you believe. You're you're clear on it, and I, I, I respect that, and I have no problem with that. Um, again, yes. trying to get back to the topic, or or James, did you want to move on to another segment here?
3: This I, I don't.
0: I, I can tell you, I don't feel like I've seen reliable evidence. That, that that's just. But I'm sure you're not surprised by that. Sure, sure.
2: Yeah. Well, we are stoked, folks to jump into your questions we appreciate them we appreciate both of our guests they're linked in the description folks so if you want to hear more hey what are you waiting for you can right now by the way you must have i mean ben i mean, don't worry good things to say about you randolph don't worry they're coming up but i have to say and with the respect i want to say thank you to ben
0: for all his patience and this wonderful cordial conversation uh, this was so enjoyable
2: absolutely and we're starting our questions or comments off this is a super chat from stupid whore energy appreciate it It says ben looks a little like ray leota do you ever get that ben you kind of do especially in the eyes
3: (laughs) i've
1: no i've never heard uh, a a comparison to ray (laughs) leota
2: <laughs> so, definitely, I think it's true. If it's like the hunter eyes, but okay, also, we had somebody in the Twitch chat as oh, no, I folks, think ben looks much happier than Ray Liotta. I just looked him up. We do have Twitch folks, and somebody in the Twitch chat also said, You sound like Nick Cage. You've got, have you ever heard that, Ben?
1: Nicholas, no, no, wow. no.
2: So, you got showbiz written all over you. The Sultan of Swag, we shall call you. So, thank you very I much. Say, I would say
0: Nicolas Cage with a, a little bit of Ronald
2: Reagan mixed
0: in to the voice. And I think that might nail it.
2: <laughs> very nice. And also, this one's from Everyday Valet says, Hey, man, can you please give me the testable evidence? Well, we'll see, Everyday Valet, if you, this is early in the debate. So, we'll see let us know in the chat if you were pleased with the testable evidence you were asking for, if you were pleased with Ben's, uh, or I should say, yeah, Ben's response. Anna Gruber, thank you for your super chat. Said, lost me a Z prime? I don't know what that means. You guys? Oh, he's referring
0: to uh, something Ben said in his opening statement about the uh, oh, yes. about, Very good. Uh, sexist empiricus.
1: Mm-hmm. So if, if we have a proposition, call it Proposition A, skepticism says that proposition is contingent upon our conferring evidence upon it to show that it's indeed true. We don't know if it's a true proposition yet. So how do we prove A? Well, presumably by B. B is proven by C, so on and so forth until you get to Z. But now you've just sort of, you, you scratch your head and you say to yourself, well, now that we're at Z, what do we do? And, uh, of course, this is a thought experiment. That's all that Sextus ever claimed it was. And he just simply said, well, you could, on infinitism, argue that what you need to do to show that the contingent status of proposition Z is settled, whatever that is, then you can say, well, it's proven by proposition A prime. And you just simply iterate the inquiry further back. Well, how is A prime proven? B prime. b prime proven c prime and so on and so forth until you get to z prime but once again you're you're kind of stuck with the same question well how do we go from here and so what it shows is that there appears to be no proper stopping mechanism on the argument of infinitism which essentially is invoking the rule of independence you need something other than a itself to show that a is valid and um, and then, of course, the other two tropes in the experiment were a way of showing, well, there's other ways to do this if you don't think that that's satisfactory, because what that winds up amounting to is that a is really never, never proven. And that's a very sad thing, if that's true.
2: Gotcha. And Jay I, I'm Mason, not convinced it is. I think I'm going to be looking into Sextus Empiricus after this. <laughs> <It> sounds <laughs> <interesting. laughs> Yeah, sure. Got it. sure. Jay Mixon appreciate your super chat said it's an error to assume all options have been exhausted just because we reached the limits of human knowledge. I agree. Ben, what do you think?
1: Do you it's think arrogant something? to assume that we have reached the limits of human knowledge?
2: No, they said it's an it's an error to assume all options have been exhausted just because we reached the limits of human knowledge. In other words, you're saying like we, even if we reach the limits of human knowledge, we should not assume that all options have been exhausted.
1: Sure. Yeah. Because there could be some sort of hypothetical other thing you've not yet considered.
2: And not necessarily hypothetical.
0: It could be real and we just haven't discovered it yet.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would certainly grant that. um, And I'm assuming that here, here, the questioner has in mind the notion of science that we're always reasoning forward and sort of groping forward in, in, in the dark um, and that there could always be something else out there. Um, that's that's sort of akin to this infinite regress that we've been discussing. Now, the thing is, is that how does that show that we have a foundation for human knowledge and Sextus talked about the other two possibilities, coherentism and foundationalism? And I think I've pointed out and essentially, the reason why I think that doesn't lead to a knowledge stalemate is because in the family of arguments that would naturally be, you know, fall into the species of foundationalism is axiomatic arguments. And to me, we're just never justified in questioning whether things like mathematical propositions are somehow false, like A plus B is equal to B plus A. No, that's false.
2: You got it. And just, it's just unimaginable to me. <laughs> Thank you, for, oh. thank you for your question. This one comes in from Everyday Valet. says, if God is real, he should be able to show himself to be a fact. This is madness, LOL. I think they're saying it's madness that God, if he is real, hasn't shown himself to be a fact.
1: Yeah. Well, to me, is it factual to say that one plus one equals two? No, and that's just an axiom and I, I as i've already mentioned in our discussion why on earth would we need an operational instance of this happening anywhere in the universe to know that 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 solution is true
0: You're so right.
1: so uh, why does why does the fact need to manifest in a physical way in order for us to know that it's real there we get into all kinds of problems philosophically uh in the area of epistemology it's that is a that's a massive train wreck in that that direction, um, and, and it leads to the collapse of a lot of other important
3: well um,
1: principles for evaluating true propositions.
3: See, I, I think when it comes
0: down to sufficiency, that the the criteria changes depending on what it is that we're trying to demonstrate. As I said earlier, we can easily and trivially demonstrate one plus one equals two. Um, but for somebody to uh, demonstrate that um, there's, uh, they know that a, a certain number is prime uh, that has 100,000 digits, that's going to take a lot more work. There's going to be a greater sufficiency for that. So depending on what it is, how sophisticated it is or how powerful it is or how, um, uh, uh, how what's involved in there, there's a sufficiency aspect here that needs to be considered.
1: I'm now remembering the question that I had with regard to this issue. Are you saying that... You have sufficient confidence that one plus one equals two because you can do it in the physical world and see it and is that the only reason you're confident or are you confident because the laws of logic dictate that it must be true? Isn't oh, that a fact is that is that does that fall under the fact family the same answer, way Randall, that and
2: we must go to the next yeah. question.
0: First of all, the problem with that question is that it attempts to limit the scope of my answers. Um, There are a number of different factors involved in that. And so um, when it comes to a trivial thing, there's lots of different things that I can say are sufficient for demonstrating that. And for practical purposes, I don't really need a heck of a lot. But when it comes to fixing the engine in a car or uh, putting up uh, or or, or de- designing the frame for part of my house or something. There's a lot mm-hmm. more I need to know in order to to have confidence in the, the fact that I'm doing it properly. So the f- sufficiency changes depending on the complexity and depending on how much knowledge I have about it.
1: Okay.
2: You got it. And thank you very much for your question coming in. Or you could say Everyday Valet says <laughs> you could tack this on to their last he said, I may be stupid, but I, I'm not understanding where the evidence for God is. Well, maybe they've changed their mind since that was in the early part of the debate. But Jay Mixon, thank you for your question. This is for Randolph. Finally, we've oh. got one for you, Randolph. He said, we don't assert a God, therefore we don't have to prove him. Theists, oh, no, I'm sorry. What they're doing is they're, they're paraphrasing each side. So um, they're saying basically that atheists say, quote, we don't assert a God, therefore we don't have to prove him. And they say that theists in response say, God is axiomatic, so we don't have to prove him. So And then they say, God says dot, dot, dot. Uh,
0: I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you need to stay that in uh, Stephen Colbert imitating Trump voice. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. He says it really well. Um, the... The way that's phrased, it almost sounds like it's a special case just for atheists, and I don't think that's what they meant, but I I just want to make it clear that that's not what it meant. We have um, uh, anybody who's not making a claim isn't carrying any kind of a burden, so as soon as somebody makes a claim about anything, if you want to convince somebody else who's not convinced, then of course you have an onus of justification or a burden of proof on that. That's just standard. That's just how it works. So it, that the same goes for proving something is real or some proving something isn't real. If you're making a claim about something in reality, then you know you you obviously have uh, have some kind of a burden to, to somehow demonstrate that's true or, or to uh, prove its veracity or, or something like that. So yeah, anybody making any kind of claim, somebody who's not taking a position on whether the Marklar on planet Marklar are real is not doesn't carry any burden of proof there
2: gotcha and thank you for your question this one comes in from cider and port appreciate it says me and leo versus cj and Smokey on socialism versus capitalism could be a very juicy debate if you would host us i'm open to that (laughs) that could be juicy indeed so shoot me an email appreciate it and amy newman thank you for your super chat. says after after show midnight and She linked it and says, Ben, is there a reason for why you became, I think you could say maybe, is there a main reason for why you became a theist and specifically a Christian? And by the way, Amy Newman's after show is linked in the description, folks. But Ben, go ahead on that question.
1: Well, um, my personal testimony is that I feel that I had what I would call a God encounter um, on a college campus in Springfield, Missouri, and there happened to be some revival services that were happening on the college campus, and there was an evangelist by the name of Sam Farina that preached and was moving the hearts of many of those young people in that auditorium to give their life to Jesus. And I didn't go up for the altar call, but I did have an altar call of my own. I, I guess you could say it that way. Out in the grassy commons of the the college campus, it was a pretty clear fall night, and uh, and I can remember being impressed with the sensation that I wasn't alone in that field, and so there was a very real thing that happened there, uh, and that is something that I've always carried with me. That that presence um, really hasn't left me throughout all of my Christian life since it's been over 20 years now, and that's never left me. So.
2: Gotcha. Thank you very much. And thank you for your question. This one is coming in from, okay, not reading that. Okay, Oz. Let's see. Oz says, great conversation. Randolph's for the, uh, Randolph for the win. And I, uh, so you had a fan out there, Randolph. We also had one that uh, was arguing uh, on behalf of Ben uh, claiming victory, <laughs> but yeah. something I'm just not going to read in public. Zero fa We've got some sick individuals. But Zirafa, thank you for your your question. Says, Ben Fisher, is there a logically coherent explanatory hypothesis of possible mechanisms of purely immaterial atemporal causation?
1: A-temporal, Correct. Causation.
2: Not temporal.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I would say that... I think that this might be sort of a nod to uh, to our current understanding of space and particular particle physics um, and empty space, the science of empty space. Now, I'm I'm a little bit rusty on some of this material, but I think that if memory serves right, it seems that those particles in that physical space you know, according to modern science, have a beginning. And so therefore, um, it isn't the case that this rules out the possibility of causality. Um, So I think that, I I don't think that quantum mechanics furnishes us a proof of this concept. Perhaps that's not what the questioner was referring to, so I did the best I could to try to interpret what they were going after.
2: (laughs) you. bet. observation, though. And... Thank you for your question. This one coming in from Oz, who says, question for Randolph. Are you grateful that Ben's camera view is from shoulders up compared to your last debate? I think that uh, (laughs) we'll we'll let Randolph tell the story.
0: Oh, that was we just I I know what he's referring to. I had a I was just debating Ten Commandments uh, two days ago uh, and my interlocutor, I it turns out he wasn't wearing pants through the whole thing. Um, I thought he was, I just assumed he's wearing pants that match his skin color. And I didn't see it, probably because I was looking at my notes and listening to what's being said. Apparently, at near the end of it, he stood up and walked all the way around in his room, and people could see a lot more than what they had bargained for. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't think I'll be debating with him again, and uh, I feel sorry for the atheist roundtable having to endure that because uh, they've been nothing I'm, but kind, and professional to everybody. You
1: know, it's just Randolph. Rest assured, I'm wearing pants. I,
0: I believe <laughs> you. I have no reason not to. I have a high level of confidence in that.
2: That's really <laughs> even as a
0: skeptic. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I'm not a skeptic. I'm trying to be one. Mm, okay. Very, yes, very That's a
1: great line. I think I'll quote you. I'm okay. not a skeptic. I'm trying to be one. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm striving to be one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very Feel much. Me. And let's see. This one comes in from 100th Monkey says, Modern day debate rocks. Thanks for your encouragement, friend. We're excited about 2021, you guys. This is going to be, this debate is one of many more epic debates to come. We're excited for it. And so Oz also says, Randolph is Canada's god. Wow, you are! This is a new religion and everything,
0: Randolph. Oh, Ben, do you want to take this one first?
1: <laughs> no, no, I don't think that uh, that Randolph would argue that he has existed from eternity. So I don't know that we can have a good grounds for saying that Randolph is god.
2: Oh yeah, I
0: am not a god. No,
2: okay, no, I, I, <laughs> end the story, yeah.
0: Comments, but uh, yeah, I am not.
2: <laughs> and human girl, thanks for your super chat. Said thanks for your channel, James will. I want to pass on that thank. You. We appreciate the thank you for sure, human girl, and also want to pass on the thank you to the debaters who are the oh. lifeblood of the channel, and so that's why you guys their links, their links are in the description right this moment, so you can go down there, just click right in there, and you are at their links. As we really do appreciate you. these guys, and if you guys want, you guys are the kind of guys that this is theoretical. Like it's is like we're just kind of feeling out, letting like kind of trying to find out where people are. We want to do a lot of in-person debates this summer and both of you guys are kind of like the caliber of speakers that we'd enjoy and so if you guys uh you know depending on your location it's not a guarantee but like hey like you guys are kind of guys that uh like let's talk let me know where you guys live if you want to do an in-person kind of event we'd love to have you and so cider in port thank you for your question says hey james i'll shoot an email to smoky try to set it up happy you'll have us be glad to be back on in a while thank you cider Import, who i think is a fellow oh wait
0: just to answer your question i'm in the greater vancouver area of uh, british columbia canada
2: gotcha the vancouver and i'm in minnesota yep oh that's right ben Uh, yes okay i st paul right
1: uh so yeah the minneapolis st paul area that's where i live
2: gotcha okay because i used to live in minnesota myself you guys both of you guys Gentlemen, you guys are both tough as nails because both of your locations, I imagine, right now are so cold.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, it is getting cold yes.
0: here. Um, I, <laughs> I, I had to stop uh, walking around outside in sandals just uh, two days ago because it's starting to get uh, a bit too cold for that.
2: Really? I, I believe it. And so we I, I grew
0: up here, so I'm kind of used to the colder climate anyway, but uh, uh, people, uh, people who aren't from here find it. Uh, uh you're wearing sandals on a day like today it's so cold
2: <laughs> that's i yes that is uh it's impressive it's a bold strategy and jay mixon thanks for your says uh you could say compliment uh they said i was going to thank randolph for his personable and amicable demeanor let's see but i found out he's Canadian. That's an unfair advantage. That's right. The Canadians are friendly. You know, we've always had, we found that they're always friendly. It's like it's, there's something in the water up there. I don't know. Uh,
0: I, to, to, I have to say to Jay Mixon, I'm very sorry about that. I couldn't help it.
2: That's, oh yeah. I That's funny. And also Cider and Port said, I definitely recognize you Cider and Port. I know that you are formerly known as religion is BS and now, uh, the new name cider and port. I definitely recognize you, buddy. And so, Oz, thanks for your super chat. Said Friday is going to be awesome. Doctor Josh is that boss? Yes, it is going to be epic, folks. On the bottom right of your screen, you are seeing biblical slavery debate this Friday with Matt Dillahunty. That's right. Uh, yeah, was, uh, Ben, you had a good one with him over the. I think it was over the summer, maybe. That was fun. Mm-hmm. And so they'll be on this Friday. That'll be against, like I said, the father-son duo, Cliff and Stewart. So that should be a fun one, folks. Don't miss it. And next in, I let's see. Iron charioteer, thanks for your question, said, For Ben, how does he go about telling a drug addict that he or she will have no drugs in heaven? I think they're well, serious, though.
1: There'll be no drugs in heaven? Yeah. I don't think the call to, to not use substances... Uh, that I, I think would be just proper to Christian sanctification does not necessarily imply that God is against having altered states of consciousness.
3: <laughs>
1: nice answer. <laughs> so, so I don't I don't at all think that uh, that we're not going to have you know extreme elation at, at, at the level that you know one could rightly say, hey, that looks like that dude's on drugs in heaven. Sure, you can quote me on that.
0: So so in heaven, you could have, like, the poppy fields to the, the west and the mushrooms? No, I'm saying
1: the... that there's a thrill in heaven that's way bigger than that.
0: Oh,
2: okay. okay. It's,
1: it's way bigger than that, and I think it would have to qualify as an altered state of conscience.
2: <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you, Mr. Lightning20 says, Ben, how do you distinguish between the Christian God causing the universe versus the thousands of other gods proposed? by other religions. Why is a thinking agent necessary?
1: Why is a thinking agent necessary? Here I would just simply go back to if the reason that the cause, the parent cause of the universe, causes the other causes to be set in motion, is something outside of itself, then that other thing, and not itself, is the parent cause of the universe. Does that I make sense? So therefore, therefore, so therefore, the the reason why the parent cause causes the other causes to be set in motion is itself and not another. So it causes itself, which in, in implies personal agency, and that directly implies a person. So I, it's it's easy to kind of reason your way back there to get to that. It's it's not, in my opinion, that's that is not, uh, you know. Uh, gymnastics mental gymnastics i think it's really sound so
0: i also i also think that omniscience and omnipotence to be useful together would require that
2: you got it and thank you very much for your question this one coming in from ryan price says question for ben if you have reliable evidence for god doesn't that mean you don't have faith anymore you can't have faith in something you already have reliable evidence for
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really, um, I think one has to understand that the Christian, when he says, I am a theist, is not saying that he is in the position of having the psychological condition of believing that God exists. He is saying that he knows that God, in mm-hmm. fact, exists. In other words, theism is a knowledge claim. No. And it's essentially it's- uh, that, you know, you can look to the Christian scriptures and you can see that that's true. Uh, That The discussion on the knowledge of God proliferates the book of Proverbs, and not just that book, but other books as well. So the Christian is definitely claiming, I think, that he knows that God exists. Now, whether or not that means he has a good argument for God's existence is entirely immaterial. The point still stands that a Christian's knowledge of God is knowledge in the proper sense, from everything we know about theology.
0: So, so uh, my understanding is the word theism actually is about belief in deities, and the word gnosticism covers knowledge of the mystical, such as deities. So there would be there, but a lot of people who believe also feel that they know, and I think that's uh, yeah, that's yeah, only, you know, Paul Draper. Referring.
1: Yeah, Paul Draper has pointed out, um, and you can see this in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, his uh, wonderful article on atheism points out that theism is a knowledge claim that God, in fact, exists, which is his reason for asserting that atheism should also be construed as a knowledge claim that God does not exist, because it's it's essentially derived from theism.
0: That's not how I read that article, and I do have some problems with that article, but that can be a conversation for another day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All the, there's most things as 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 is the case in virtually every philosophical discussion are quote unquote debatable. But
0: it you know. wouldn't be philosophy if there wasn't dissension.
2: <laughs> Next yeah. up, top dog Shattuck. Appreciate your question. For this one's for Ben. They say, where do theists get the information of an intelligent designer in real life instead of just nature and the observed?
1: I'm not sure that I understand what the question is asking.
2: Um, I kind of think they're asking if I were to put it in my own words, I think they're kind of saying, Mm -hmm. why do you get the idea that there's an intelligent designer rather than it just being not an intelligent designer?
1: Yeah, I'm not, I think that, uh, what you could go to, um, because you know, if you're going to fault, sort of a not a not so intelligent designer, aren't you still se- essentially conceding to the point that the first cause argument, as I've described it, shows that God exists? And so, again, I would just say that that would be a strange position for an atheist to assume. Um, but I think that if if you were to look at the appearance of nature, what's called the teleological argument, the argument from the perfect order of creation, it's it would be a strange thing for the type of order that we have seen in the universe to come together just simply by random processes alone, Uh, just sort of random stochastic processes, bringing about all of this. Uh, That's, that's a hard one. I think even for some scientists to swallow.
0: Just to be clear, I'm not aware of uh, very many atheists who claim it's random. It's uh, just a just how things work in our in our universe in reality right right
1: and there the argument is from necessity as uh, as as opposed to the mechanism of chance but i don't find that alternative to be persuasive either
0: sure and then with with atheism it's not like a lot of time people are thinking oh atheists need to answer scientific questions since they're not answering a religious question but no we don't um if we're scientists and we're interested in answering those questions sure if you're posing the question to a scientist, then that makes
1: sense. And I would agree with that.
2: Gotcha. And thank you for your question. I think we are pretty much caught up. I could have sworn we, oh, this is an interesting, we just had this one come in. Appreciate it. This one coming in from Bali Nax says, question for Randolph, is Canada more or less religious than America?
0: Oh, we're definitely less religious, uh, but there still are a lot of people here following religions. And there's... Uh, I think we have a lot more variety and diversity in the different religions that people follow here. And the thing, though, it it can be a little deceiving because uh, culturally, a lot of religious and non-religious people are basically a lot of theists and atheists here, don't um, don't publicly declare it everywhere everywhere we go. Um, It's generally here thought of more as a a private thing. Um, So you might see people with a little bit of religious symbolism here and there, but it's it would, like when I look at what's going on in the U S and you see people make a big deal of it. We, we don't see nearly as much of that here.
2: Gotcha. And with that couple of things up front folks, or I could say at the uh, tail end one, you guys, most importantly, our guests are linked in the description. So check those links out. We appreciate these guys. Also, if you like podcasts, well, Hey, yeah, our podcast is out there. It's just like YouTube. You know, it's just open for the public. If you can't find us in your favorite podcast app, let me know. We will work to get on there. So pull out, pull out your phone right now. See if we are on your favorite podcast app, because we want to be sure that we are. And hopefully that's a value to you As it's cool thinking that many more people will hear this debate, not only on YouTube, but then our podcast is picking up momentum. And so we also put the guest links in the podcast description now as well so if you're listening by podcast you can also get to ben or randolph's link by clicking on those links in the description so thank you guys it's been a true pleasure randolph and ben we really do appreciate you guys being with us
0: thank you very much pleasure
2: with that folks to meet we, you too, ben.
0: nice to
3: meet you
2: We yeah this has been such a cordial debate i had a feeling I was like these guys are so cordial there it, it's going to be a tremendous debate we just appreciate that it's like people get, it's like, it's not a WWE Jerry Springer <laughs> type of thing. So we appreciate you guys. And so uh, an extra thank you guys. And so with that, folks, keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. I will be back in just a moment with a kind of an after post credits scene, which is just be a quick channel update on upcoming debates and stuff like that. So with that, thank you though, everybody. Keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable.